Good morning, Trinity Church, for about the fourth time, but I'm John Rittenhouse. A little bit about me to kind of give you a little orientation of the speaker this morning. My wife and I have been uh, members here at Trinity for 25 years. Um, we were both on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. We did that for 30 years, working with college students the entire time. And I was an adjunct instructor at Biola University for 18 years. Absolutely fabulous experience, incredibly good school and environment. And I just loved my opportunity for ministering to believers there. And uh, for the last 15 years, I've had my own nonprofit ministry, which is entitled Pursue Your Passion Ministries, which focuses on mentoring uh, men. Most of the guys that I mentor are in the 25 to 35 age bracket. This morning we're going to be looking at the absolutely certain promise of God in 1 John chapter 5, 5 through 13. As we do, let's open our time in prayer together. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and move our hearts as we look at your word and your testimony concerning your son and your promise to us about eternal life. God, our time this morning, we love you in Christ's name. In our passage at hand, God wants us to know that his testimony is true about his son and that it, and his promise concerning eternal life is certain. Throughout the book of 1 John, John is extremely concerned about believers having the right view of Jesus. Why? Because one's eternal destiny is dependent upon having the right view of Jesus. And John is defending the identity of Jesus against a Gnostic heresy which has a false view of Jesus. The Apostle Paul also constantly defends a biblical viewpoint of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, got a slide for that, um, <clears throat> defends a, an accurate picture of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11.4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. The word another is a Greek word spelled A-L-L-O-S, allos, and it means another of a similar type. It's kind of like a red delicious apple and a granny apple. They're, they're both apples, but they have substantial differences. So Paul is saying somebody comes and preaches to another Jesus. So they're talking about the same individual, you know, the guy that was, you know, born in Bethlehem, you know, he's in Nazareth for a while did this ministry amongst the Galileans and Israel. You know, that guy, Jesus, yeah, that guy we're talking about. But John says you're attributing, Paul says, you're attributing different characteristics to this Jesus. And John is going after this Gnostic heresy. Related to Jesus, we're speaking about the same person, but ascribing extremely different qualities about him. So we have heresies that John is dealing with. Next slide. So heresies both past and present. John was dealing with the Serinthian heresy that claimed that Jesus was only a human being. But at his baptism, the divine spirit, or the Christ, came upon Jesus for a period of time. And then right before Jesus gets crucified, this divine nature, this, the Christ, was removed from Jesus. So Jesus is just a human being. Well, we have another heresy that cropped up in the 4th century called the Arian heresy. Uh, Arius was an elder in one of the churches in Europe, and he questioned the identity of Jesus. He said, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Jesus is a created being. 
There was a council convened in 325. The Nicene Creed came out of this council. And there was delegates from all over Europe that met and discussed this for about a month. And at the end of the month, they formulated the Nicene Creed, which is a great document. There was 320 delegates there. And they had a vote on whether or not to approve it. 316 in favor of it, four against. Well, you can guess who was against it. Arian and his three friends were against it. Unfortunately, after that Greek creed was formulated, Arianism actually ruled in the church until the end of the 4th century. With 397, and Athanasius was uh, responsible in part for the Athanasius Creed. And at that point in time, Arianism was put to death. And it ended, thank you, Lord. But that heresy, the Arian heresy, reeled its head and was resurrected again in 1830 with the formation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Taze Russell started the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it was originally known as Russellites. And they believe homogeneous, you can talk to anybody that's studied or involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses, every single one of them believes that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. That's a heresy. That's false. That's another Jesus. Now, Charles Taze Russell was actually from a Seventh-day Adventist background or an Adventist background. And the Adventists, far from being homogeneous, some of them are very evangelical and biblical and orthodox in their view of Jesus, but some of them, including the parent organization who published a Bible called the Clear Word Bible, which is not very clear, it's not the Word of God, and it surely is not the Bible based upon its content. In it, they render Jude 9 in this way. In contrast to these ungodly men is the Lord Jesus Christ, also called Michael the Archangel. This is false. This is another Jesus. Now, we don't want to focus on that. We want to focus on the Corinthian heresy and John's affirmation that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He is, in fact, God incarnate. How do you know if something's good or real? Well, if you're talking about restaurants or car repair, a lot of times you'll look on Yelp, right? You'll look at the reviews on Yelp and see how they are, if it's just off the charts positive. You're like, oh, this, this restaurant must serve great food, or man, this car repair place must be very honest and reliable. How do you know if something is real? Oftentimes we rely upon eyewitness testimony. In our passage, there's actually three witnesses that John calls to support the idea that God's testimony about his son is true. So we're going to look at this passage. 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So three witnesses. The first is water, which is referring to actually John's or Jesus' baptism. Now, you've got to ask the question, why did, John, why did Jesus get baptized? John's baptism is referred to in the New Testament as a baptism of repentance. Jesus has nothing to repent about. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's impeccable. He's righteous. 
And Matthew gives us insight to this question when he says, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it, all this, permit it at this time. For in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's kind of the reason why John allowed it and Jesus wanted to. It's to fulfill all righteousness. Every single requirement of the law, Jesus wanted to fulfill to be the perfect sacrifice. But the significance of his baptism is a bit significance of his baptism is that it was the start in the inauguration of his messianic ministry and his consecration by the Father. You're familiar with this passage in Luke where Luke records and says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the, Jesus, this is the start of Jesus' messianic ministry, and the consecration by the Father, the first witness. The second witness is, is the blood, which is in reference to his death on the cross. In order for Jesus to be a fit sacrifice, he would have to be as righteous as the Father is righteous. 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus Christ is our advocate. I like this term. The picture of it is a lawyer who champions our rights. And there's a little preposition, our advocate with. That little word with, pros in the Greek, has the idea of facing or looking eyeball to eyeball with the Father. How can Jesus, as our lawyer, who champions our defense, how can he be fit to look eyeball to eyeball with God the Father? Because Christ, John says, is the righteous. He's qualified to face the Father and say, these individuals are not guilty. I've paid the penalty for their sin. Jesus experienced both spiritual and physical death on the cross. Now, if you'll remember in Genesis, when God created Adam, he said to Adam, Adam, if you eat from that tree in the center of the garden, the day that you eat, you will surely die that day. I would estimate that Adam was probably 100 years old before he sinned. And the text of Scripture says he lived until he was 930 years old. When Adam ate that fruit, he didn't die physically that day. But he did die spiritually. God kicked him out of the garden, stationed angels at the entrance to the garden, and Adam experienced spiritual and relationship divorce from God. Jesus experienced spiritual death, separation from the, God, from the Father. Seven statements Jesus makes in the cross. The one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was expressing anguish of heart, not an intellectual question. Why was God forsaking him? Because at that point in time, the sins of the world were placed upon the shoulders of Jesus, and God the Father had to look away, and Jesus experienced something he never experienced in all of eternity. One of my students at Biola asked me one time when I mentioned this in class, 
about Jesus' experience of spiritual death. And I literally just started to cry. I couldn't talk. Because as I think deeply about it, my heart gets very sad. There's some things in our life sometimes when I've gone through hard times and my wife will say, tell me what's going on and I'll only give her the cliff notes. I don't tell her everything because I don't want her heart to be burdened with the hurt. Jesus Christ isn't going to give us a complete answer. If we were to ask him, how did it feel? I'm sorry, he's not going to tell us. He's going to give us the cliff notes because the anguish and pain that he experienced is unimaginable to my mind. And then Jesus also uttered when he was on the cross, he declared, it is finished. It's paid in full. The penalty for sin has been paid. And then shortly after, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit. At physical death, the soul separates from the body. That's the second witness. The water, the blood, the third witness is the spirit. And John refers to the spirit as the spirit of truth. Quote from John chapter 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We want to get the full scoop, the full story, we look to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's involved. At the point of Jesus' conception, it was responsible from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit is there. Jesus being compelled into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is the one that compelled him. Jesus' ministry of preaching, the Holy Spirit is involved. Jesus' miracles in his ministry, Holy Spirit is involved all the steps of the way in Jesus' life. So who knows Jesus Christ the best? the Holy Spirit. And then John turns his attention from the three testimonies to the idea of comparing our willingness to accept men's testimonies to the need to accept God's certain testimony about his son, verse 9. Since we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. You go to the doctor, you have a chest x-ray, the little black Spot shows up on your lungs, you're scared that it's cancer. Your doctor does a biopsy, sends it to the lab. A week later, you show back up in his office and he says to you, your biopsy came back negative for cancer. Do you trust his testimony? Absolutely you do. Incredibly so. He's qualified and you also want good news. Or you end up in the courtroom, you are on a jury. Been on two juries, very unpleasant experiences. But when they swear you in, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Now I know it's hard to believe. But sometimes people lie. I know it's tough. And frequently they could be sincere, but still mistaken. But truthful people tell the truth. I had a Chinese student about 14 years ago. He's over at my house, not a Christian. And I said to him, because I'd shared the gospel with him so many times, I said, I will not lie to you. I said, my character is that of a truth teller. And right away he challenges me. Did you tell your children that Santa Claus was real? 
I said, no, I actually told my children that he was false. So he gets up out of his chair in my office, walks into my living room, and he says to my kids, hey, did your father tell you Santa Claus was real? And all my kids said, no, my, my papa told us that Santa Claus was false. And so he was satisfied that I was a truth teller. But then he says to me, challenges me some more, he says, but you could be mistaken. Yes, I can. But I'm not going to willingly, knowingly tell you a lie. I'm a truth teller. Now, you know, sometimes that gets, you know, we get a little push and shove on that. You know, in the situation, you know, husbands, your wife tries on a new dress and she says, uh, do you think it makes me look fat? <laughs> I know there's going to be great temptation to lie to her. And you're going to have to figure out that dilemma yourself. I'm not going to give you the answer to that one. <laughs> truthful people tell the truth. John the Baptist is a truthful person. John the Baptist says concerning Jesus, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Or the soldier at the cross. He never seen anybody die like Jesus died. This is not a very pleasant way to die. It's very painful, excruciatingly painful. Jesus doesn't come and swear and mock and yell and scream, but he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This soldier had never seen anyone die like Jesus died. And as a result of that, when Jesus passes, the soldier says, truly this was the Son of God. But God's testimony is even greater. If men and women of integrity can be trusted to tell the truth, then surely God can be trusted to tell us the truth. Verses 9 and 10. Since we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning the Son. There's two possible responses to God's testimony you can accept or reject. In 1 John 4, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Chapter 2, 22, who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? If you reject God's testimony, you are calling God a liar. How serious is it to call God a liar? I was thinking of an illustration. One that came to mind is law enforcement. You, uh, you do a rolling stop sign or you run through a red light. I know it never happens in California. I know, you'd have to use your imagination. Actually, in the last week, I observed two dozen people rolling through the stop sign. And two people stopping at the red light and then going through the red light because they didn't want to wait another 15 seconds. And I'm like, you know, traffic laws aren't really laws in California. They're actually mild suggestions. So you roll through the stop sign and the police officer pulls you over. Now, the Declaration of Independence says this. We, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that God has created us and endowed us with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Now, a police officer can deprive you of all three of those constitutional rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. He can put you in jail if he wants. He can shoot you dead if it's justified. He can deprive you of all three of those. So he pulls you over, you roll down the window, and he starts talking to you about rolling through the stop sign or running the red light. And you start trash-talking him. You start giving him or her bad attitude. And I'm like, dude, this is not good for your health. He can deprive you of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in about three seconds. I wouldn't be giving him trash talk. Well, God has much bigger authorities than a police officer or a judge in the courtroom. Most of us are sane enough not to give trash talk to the police officer or to the judge if we're in the courtroom. So what is the content of God's testimony? There's four things. What does God want us to believe concerning his son? First, that his son, Jesus Christ, is God incarnate. He's not just a human being. He is fully God. He is fully human. He is God incarnate. John demands that we believe that if we're going to have a right view of Jesus and we're going to affirm God's testimony. 1 John 4. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Second, God wants us to accept his testimony that God has given us as believers in the Son of God eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, our passage. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's not just about belief about Jesus. You could have the right data points. Oh, you're born a virgin, died on a cross, rose from the grave heaven and hell, you could have all the data points that are right. It's not just proper belief about the content of Jesus. It's actually belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation involves trusting the right object, Jesus who is God incarnate, for the right reason, to pay the penalty for your sin. Third, that the source of eternal life is his Son, and then fourthly, which we'll look at in a minute, that eternal life is absolutely certain for believers in the Son of God. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God has given us. It's a past nuance. And it's a statement of fact. God has given us eternal life. What's eternal life? It involves a location, but that's not what it is. Eternal life involves a lot of time, but that's not what it is. John defines it in his gospel as this, verse, chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is primarily a relationship, a relationship with God the Father and with God the Son. An eternal friendship, that's what it is. Yeah, it involves location and time but it's centrally a relationship. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Those who have the son have life. Those that don't have the son of God don't have life. There's no in between. 
This next slide is of my trip that I took um, recently. I was actually in China for most of the month of June doing ministry there. And the last day that I was there, that evening, I actually spoke at this club, English club, and most of the people at this club are actually not believers. So it's a way to generate some conversation. And so my topic was, is death final? And I asked the group, um, are you planning for your retirement? You know, in China, they retire at 60, not 65 or 67 like the U.S. or who knows when. But 60 years of age, that's retirement age. So do they plan for it? Yeah, in China, their strategy for retirement is to buy two or three apartments in the city that they're at, generally the city that they're at, and during the course of their work life, those apartments off. And then when they retire, those payments are paid off, and they have rent from those two or three apartments, which is a great retirement account for them. So I brought that up to them. They're, you know, they're nodding their head. They're like, yeah, 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 you got it. You, you understand this. You understand the culture. I said, no, I know I understand the culture. I've been to China 19 times. I've done ministry there for over 11 years. So then I asked him another question. I said, are you planning for your future life? Because death is not final. Are you planning for that next life also? Well, in the Chinese culture, they never think about death. It just is not a part of the thought process. When it happens, it happens, but they never think about it. I thought about it growing up. When I was 15, my older brother asked me, John, if you die, why would God let you name it? Now, he didn't have a clue as to what the right answer to the question was. Not a clue. But he was actually involved with a heretical group, and he thought he had the right answer, but he didn't. He was way off track. But I responded to his question. I said, I believe in God. I go to church. I try to live a good moral life. Notice the subject of my sentences. I, I, I. What was I trusting to get me into heaven? Me. Wrong answer. Bad response. No matter how much faith you have in the wrong object, it's no good. If I put my faith into that wall to get me to heaven, I can have more faith than any person on the planet. But it's the wrong object. There's only one right object. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate. That's the only proper object. So when I was a little bit later in life, about a year later, I was watching one of Billy Graham's evangelistic films at my hometown theater. Afterwards, one of the counselors came to me and started asking me questions because I, I wanted to have a conversation. And, uh, you know, I parroted this, you know, I'm a, I believe in God, I go to church, I live a good life. He says, that's the wrong answer. He says, salvation is a gift. I said, oh, you're kidding me. He's like, no, it's a gift. I'm like, you're kidding me. He said, no, it's actually a gift. I said, no, you're kidding me. I mean, I just was beyond my comprehension. And then he reads Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. And God used that scripture to open my eyes. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a, it's a, it's a gift? He said, yeah, it's a gift. Would you like, have you ever accepted that gift? I'm like, no, I didn't even know there was a gift. He's like, would you like to accept that gift? And at 16 years of age, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And a year and a half later, I went to college, got involved with an organization, Campus Crusade. 
for Christ. And when I graduated, I joined the staff of that organization and worked for 30 years telling other college students how they can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So, question for you. How are you doing with your next life retirement plan? Have you accepted God's testimony about his son? Have you placed your trust in the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to pay for your sins? High school, there, I saw this bumper sticker numerous times during high school, back of a car. Salvation, don't leave earth without it. I thought, man, that's a good statement. That's a great statement. And then lastly, God's promise of eternal life is absolutely certain. Titus 1, 2. The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God promised. God cannot lie. God gives eternal life. 1 John 2, 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. Verse 13. These things I've written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The text doesn't say, so that you think that you have eternal life, so that you would hope that you have eternal life, so that you might possibly have eternal life. These things I've written to you, who believe in the same in the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Have. It's continuous. It's now and ongoing. It's a statement of fact. The word no has the idea of certain, absolute, beyond doubt. I was in Riga, Latvia, speaking at the college campus there, March 1995. And in the evening lecture, I said to people, if you want some time with me tomorrow, come on up and sign up on my schedule. I had a number of people sign up, two different professors, one an ec economic professor, who the next day actually committed her life to Christ with me. Great story, don't have time for it. Another guy that signed up on the list was a math professor there at the University of Latvia. So we met the next morning, we started talking, and he said, John, I was raised in the church, Eastern Orthodox Church. He said, I used to believe in God, but I don't anymore. And so I was thinking, my brain goes rapid fire, and I was trying to think of something I could use to move towards the idea of God existing. He's a math professor. So I took a piece of paper, wrote two plus two equals, question mark. I said, what's two plus two equal? He said, four. I said, how many right answers? He's like, only one. I said, how many wrong answers? Infinite. Then he raises an objection, which I was ready for. He said, those are only symbols. Ah, yes, but they represent objective reality, don't they? And he got it. I said, this is a mathematical absolute. How certain is he as a math professor that two plus two is equal to four? Or if we have math professors, 2 base 10 plus 2 base 10 equals what base 10 expressed in a whole number integer? They're like, are you nuts? Yeah, because I said this once at a lecture in Ohio. What's 2 plus 2 equal? And some guy in the Q&A time, math major, he said, well, it depends upon what base it is and blah, 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 blah. I said, so I'll never make the mistake again. 2 base 10 plus 2 base 10 is equal to what base 10 expressed in a whole number integer? There's only one right answer. Four. And this math professor knew that it was a mathematical absolute. He was certain of it. He was confident of it. And I said to him, 
if there's a mathematical absolute, there has to be a source of all these absolutes, doesn't there? There has to be an ultimate absolute, and he got the connection. He said, you're right. God has to exist. <laughs> it's amazing I could use 2 plus 2 equals 4 to convince somebody that God exists. It's amazing, but you never know. So if you don't know that you have eternal life, then there's two possible reasons for it. First one, next slide, is you have a lack of relationship. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you know him, you're going to learn to love him. And if you love him, you're going to progressively more and more obey him. It's just natural. As we say, it's like falling off a log. It's easy. If you don't obey him, then you don't love him. And if you don't love him, you surely don't know him. Second reason why you might not be certain of your eternal life is lack of knowledge. Next slide. So these are all individuals that I met in my recent trip to China. Lots of stories. Tell you little blips of it. Every single one of these seven individuals are highly highly committed believers love Jesus pursuing him but every single one of them when I asked them the question if you were to die how certain are you that you'd go to heaven zero to hundred percent I got a wrong answer from all seven the first one next slide Zatan I asked him and he said zero how certain are you to go to heaven zero to hundred percent he said zero I'm like oh man I was I was shocked I'm mean, like, this brother is committed from our conversation. I knew he was tracking with Jesus, incredibly committed. I oftentimes ask brothers, when's the last time you looked at pornography? He said, I don't look at pornography. I was like, woo, this brother is committed big time. So when I asked him at zero to 100, he said zero. So I started covering assurance of salvation with him covered 1 John 5, our, our text, 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I asked him these questions. What is God's testimony in verse 11? He's given us eternal life. What's the source of this eternal life from the verse? Jesus Christ. Who has eternal life according to verse 11 or 12? Those who have Jesus who does not have eternal life, according to verse 12? Those that don't have Jesus. When I ask him, do you have Jesus? Do you have the Son of God? Yes. Then you have eternal life. Verse 13, these things I've written to you who, these things I've written to you so that you may, that, may know that you have eternal life. Why does John write verse 13? The text says so that you can know that you have eternal life. When does eternal life begin? And he got it. He says, the minute you place your trust in Christ. I said, exactly. When will it end? I love asking that question. They just think I'm being nuts. What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? When is it going to end? What do you mean? Yeah, when is it going to end? And they're like, well, it's forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hello. The next morning, I met with Zatan again. He brought his girlfriend with him. And I asked her the same 0 to 100% question. And she said, 100. And I was like, hmm. 
something's up here. I said, did Zatan talk to you last night when he got back from our discussions? Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. That's called basic discipleship. You take what you've learned and you pass it on to others. Some of us are spiritually constipated. We're taking all kinds of information in, but we're not giving any information out. You need to get into the program. You need to give away what you've learned. And you've learned a lot. Next slide. Another individual, Meng Zhao. I love this brother. I love this brother. Love this brother like crazy. Just love him. Met him eight years ago on another trip to China. And when I met him this particular day, uh, we were inside the building where he works. He teaches at a, a basically a Christian school. I didn't say that. Um, but uh, I asked him a couple questions. I was asking him about how he's doing in his walk with the Lord. He's having some stress points in his relationship, and so he starts to cry. So he leaves the room, walks outside for about 30 seconds, comes back in, and he says, John, your questions, the Holy Spirit used your questions to convict my heart. This brother has got such an unbelievably warm and tender heart. I just love being with him. So I asked him the zero to 100% question, and he said 50%. So here we go again. First John chapter 5, 11 through 13. And then I covered with him the next passage, John chapter 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I asked him, what does God give us? Eternal life. How long does it last? Forever. Well, if it only lasts 20 years, hello, was it really eternal? Or last 67 years or 80 years or 90? Is it really? No, it's not eternal. It's an oxymoron. Will we ever perish according to the verse? No. Who's holding on to whom? Jesus is holding on to us. So who's responsible for the security of the relationship? Jesus Christ is. Notice the text. No one. That includes you. You get ticked off for some reason. God is not as good as he really is, or you think he's not as good as he really is. You get ticked off at him. God, I want out of this relationship. I don't want this anymore. I'm sorry. You are stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you. We're in it for the long haul. Next slide. These two brothers, I asked them the 0-100% question. One said 40, one said 50, or thereabouts. So I covered 1 John 5, 11 through 13, John chapter 10, 27, 28, and then I covered Hebrews 13, 5, which says, let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Self has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The word never in the first phrase is a double negative, no, not. The next phrase, nor ever, is a triple negative. No, no, not. In this sentence, the writer of Hebrews says of God, God says five times in one sentence, I will no, 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 leave or forsake you. Was he trying to get across the point? You bet he was. Our relationship is secure and permanent. Next slide. 
I was having a ride with this taxi cab driver. He had a crucifix around the rearview mirror, a Bible on the dash. I'm like, whoa, I'm in China. What's happening? So I asked my friend, ask him if he's Catholic because it's a crucifix, not a cross. He said, no, I'm not Catholic. I'm a Christian. So I asked him the zero to 100% question. He says, 50. I'm like, here we go again, buddy. First John, you know, so we go through the routine again, the passages, and he gets it. God is a good father, right? He's a good, good father. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. That father wants us to have security. So after I went through those passages, I asked him again, zero to 100, he says, 100%. Praise God. Yes. A deductive argument. The security of the believer is dependent upon the promise of God. The promise of God never changes. Therefore, the security of the believer never changes. They say the only thing that is certain is death and taxes. Well, that's true. But there's something that's more certain, and that is the certainty of eternal life. In the person believing in the Son of God. God is a promise keeper. 1 John 2.25, this is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. One of my favorite verses is Numbers 23.19, especially in reference to this context. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God doesn't lie. He's not going to change his mind. If he said, he's going to do it. If he's spoken, it, he's going to make it good. Next slide. These two brothers are best friends, Christian brothers. I developed a relationship with both of them this trip. Jen, the one on the left, we met up, talked for six and a half hours in English. It was an incredible time, and our hearts deeply connected. Both of these brothers are incredibly committed to Jesus. And uh, Ming Xuan, when I asked him the zero to 100% question, actually both of these guys, different days, but when I asked Ming, Ming Xuan, zero to 100, he says, 100. I said, why? He said, because, he said, because I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Why, fantastic answer. And in closing, Romans chapter 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, what else is there? From the crib to the crib, from the crib or the cradle to the grave. That's it. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, those are demonic powers, nor things present, nothing today, nor things to come, that's all of the future, nor powers, not any authority in the world, nor height nor depth. And then I think the Apostle Paul took a breath of air and said, men and women, if you think I've missed something, nor any other created thing, Everything's created except for God. And he's already given us his promise of eternal life. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we talked about the witness of the water 
the blood, and the Spirit. We've talked about God's certain testimony concerning his Son and the absolute certain promise of God about eternal life. These things I've written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The promise of God is absolutely certain. Are you certain? Let's pray together. Worship team, come on up as I pray. Father, thank you for your testimony concerning your son. That eternal life is found in Jesus, your son. And that you give us promise that we have eternal life. That our relationship is secure and permanent. You want us to know this. You want us to have security in our relationship. Maybe there's some here this morning that aren't sure because you're not sure that you've ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to contemplate that choice, that simple transfer of trust from whatever you're trusting in presently and transfer it to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to trust you to pay the penalty for my sins. I encourage you to do that if you haven't. God invites you into an eternal friendship with himself. And for those of us that are believers, we do possess the Son. God wants you to be secure. He doesn't want you to worry. He wants you to have security in your relationship with him. He is a good, good father. He is a good God. And he loves you, and he's given you his promise of eternal life. In Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.